Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rookrout. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we will be recapping our favorite films from 2020. Looking ahead to my list, it is so different than my end of year list for 2019, where I had a lot of big filmmakers that I was familiar with, like Scorsese and Tarantino. And I think, too, just 2020 was a wild year for movie going, considering that I watched more movies in one year than I've ever watched before, but nearly all of them were watched in my home, which was a very odd experience. I guess similarly for me, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but yeah, 2019, I had a lot of the Academy-nominated films and films that should have been nominated as well. And this year, I have a huge mix. I'm going to go over my favorite category of films that made a bunch of my top 20, I would say, in a minute here. And like you said, I've also seen more films in a year than I have ever, which was super exciting. I didn't quite make it to 365, but it was pretty close. Did you make it in the end? I did. I got to 371 was my total count, but I will say it would have been even higher if I wouldn't have rewatched, for example, most of the Housewives over again. So it, it's a crazy feat that I got to 365, considering how many trash television shows I watched. But looking at 2020 in general, just those releases, I watched 88 movies from 2020. Mm -hmm. So a good portion, of course, of my watches were really old films that I'd always wanted to see but had never gotten around to or a lot of international films that I'd never seen that I really wanted to. So that was an unexpected joy, I would say, of 2020 in a good way that I think I used film to escape from the horrors of the year. And I wasn't too far behind. I saw 84 movies from 2020, which probably includes some 2019 releases that were delayed until 2020 in the US. So I guess it's a little gray area that I'm including in my 2020 count. But I had 84 movies for 2020 and 340 for the year. I definitely got to as many new releases as I could. But you mentioned TV. There's just so much TV out there. It's hard to choose what to watch and what to put off because a a lot of it is good now. You have shows like The Crown and Watchmen and I May Destroy You, these like very cinematic pieces. And it gets overwhelming when you try to figure out, okay, am I going to watch TV? Am I going to watch a movie? And these series mm -hmm. can be really long and it's a lot of time. We keep track of a lot of our movies on Letterboxd and they keep stats for the year, for all time. And they tell you like how many minutes you've watched for movies in a year, which is so horrifying. <laughs> it really it really is and then it's really cool because it'll break down how many different directors you've seen movies from and actors and what countries and genres and you have all your ratings in there as well so it's a lot of fun to play with and also since we've talked about this last we had mentioned our mutual watch lists weren't too compatible but I've added so much to mine lately that hopefully we'll have to get back to our watch list letterboxed episode episode at some point. Yeah, that would be fun. So we're going to start off here with some of our honorable mentions. I have a list on, again, my letterbox of all the 2020 movies I've seen ranked, and I really wanted to include as many as I could here. Limiting it to five was really challenging. So some of my honorable mentions, 
I know that it's not cool to love Mank, but I did love Mank. We have a whole episode about it. You can hear all about why I love it so much. Some other ones, though, that I feel like aren't as well known. So Never Rarely, Sometimes Always is definitely more well known, especially if you've been, I think, paying attention to Critics Awards. Sydney Flanagan and Eliza Hittman have been getting a lot of love there. But Never Rarely, Sometimes Always is just, it's the type of coming of age story that I wish was made more often. And especially in a year like 2020, where I had to think about healthcare a lot, this was, I think, an incredibly simple yet profound story of a woman who has to travel across state lines to get an abortion. And it's on HBO Max right now. Highly recommend. Another one that I really loved was called Shit House. Do not be deterred by the title. It's a lovely little college story gem. It's mm-hmm. directed by Cooper Rafe, who also stars in the movie. And it reminded me of one of those kind of talky... 90s films, something like Noah Baumbach would have made or like a before sunrise type of story. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed it and I didn't see it coming. I really didn't expect anything out of it really. And it's a perfect watch at home. I believe it's on Prime right now. You can rent it there. I also saw Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. It's a powerful movie and I always love a New York movie as well. Mm -hmm. And just great performances and a really interesting script. I also really like Shithouse. I'd seen the poster and kind of dismissed it. But once I got Mm -hmm. to it, once I saw it on some of the big pictures top lists, I said, okay, I have to give this a chance. And And it just really grabs you in so quickly. And it's nostalgic of those early moments in college when you're feeling lost and just trying to find yourself and your own independence. And the relationship between the two main characters feels so fresh. And I really liked both of them and the depths to where their characters go throughout the movie. So I definitely also recommend that one. A film on my list I've briefly talked about before on a previous pod, but it's called Baccarat. It's a Brazilian geopolitical thriller, and I don't want to go too much into it because this story is just so bonkers that it's really fun to get into and watch. It won the jury prize at the 2019 Cannes Film Festival, and then this year so far, so this is one of those carryovers, it won the New York Films Critics Award for Foreign Language Film pretty recently. So it's still out there. It's a really fun watch. So I know that this is not a college football podcast by any means, but the other day, so New Year's Day, I was so stressed because Ohio State was playing Clemson in the Sugar Bowl and it wasn't until like eight o'clock at night. So I needed something to fully distract me. So I would look away from my phone and not get on Twitter and get angry and get stressed about this game. So I put on Baccarat and I loved it. I was just like so engrossed in it. It pulled me right out of my like dark mental state preparing for this game. And I highly recommend it. I thought it was great and so strange, which I love. Mm -hmm. But I really hope that it does well with awards going forward. Such an interesting political commentary too. Right. I watched it on Canopy. If you have Canopy, it's free. My honorable mention that was really close to making it in and I really wanted to just have it tie with something because I loved it so much and that's Time, which is a film by Garrett Bradley. It's on Prime right now if you want to watch it. It is shot in black and white. I don't want to give too much away because it's also not very long. It's a pretty quick watch. About five minutes into this movie, I was just totally hooked on this woman and her story of her husband who has been incarcerated for years now and 
she's telling the story of this system and this was like the most emotionally moving experience I've had watching a film all year so I definitely had to give that a shout out and it's a really really strong strong film and I highly recommend it and she's a great storyteller because one she's a great public speaker so as you see her Mm -hmm. go between different seminars she tells this really profound story of her own and Mm -hmm. there's some really great footage from throughout their life and through this period where they're trying to work on releasing the husband really and just her story and she's such a positive person I couldn't imagine being in that position and how devastating it would be on your life and she just carries it so well and in sharing her message I think it just makes it all the more powerful and going off of this this is included in my other honorable mention collection which is just documentaries for the year which really blew me away I've liked documentaries in the past but because they were readily available at home I just got so engrossed in all of them and there are just so many powerful stories being told it was so fascinating to hear about the political tensions and corruption and heartwarming stories and odd relationships that people capture on film and it's really mesmerizing i've definitely mentioned before but documentaries i've always found really easy to watch at home i watched last night the one about the bgs that's on hbo max and was crying like a baby at the end also one thing i love about these docs is that you get to hear from people that you might be familiar with and you can also hear from people who you've never heard of before but who have incredible new perspectives to offer from people and places you would never expect or even be in your lifetime and i think that's what's so moving about all of these movies i'm not going to go in depth here but i really recommend that you look into all of these i know they can't all be nominated but i really hope a large number of these are the only one not streaming on a platform right now is called collective but it is available to rent some on netflix include crip camp disclosure and dick johnson is dead you mentioned time available on prime the way i see it is available on peacock and Welcome to Chechnya is on HBO Max. Another one I liked, which most likely won't get any industry attention, is My Octopus Teacher, also available on Netflix, (laughs) (laughs) which is probably the oddest documentary that I really put off because I thought it was going to be too weird, and it was very moving. It wasn't far-fetched, as you might be led to believe, by what the movie's about. It's on the long list. I will say, just looking at your list, though, Dick Johnson is dead. I loved that documentary so much. I would love for it to get attention. I haven't seen Collective yet, but it's been on my list. And just from the stills I've seen from it and the premise, I think it could have a lot of Oscar potential. This is, for me, sight unseen. But I'm wondering if it is a case like Honeyland, where it can pick up multiple nominations across different categories. I really think it could, and I hope it does. I would kind of describe it like a real-life spotlight. Not the same material, but I think the intensity of what the investigation brings is there. Oh, that sounds great. Okay, I will definitely watch it. So let's get into our top fives. Definitely looking at my list, it's a mood. And I realized that with 2020, I wanted a very gentle film going experience. There was so much chaos going on in the world that looking at my list, I wanted something that was 
familiar, but empathetic. And some of these movies, I think, are really just like flat out masterpieces. But Mm -hmm. they do, I think, in the most case, all have that in common of being things that I just love and not really pushing myself outside of my comfort zone film going wise. I think each of my top five are representative of a different demographic of people. And I think that'll make sense after I Mm -hmm. list them all. Definitely. Our lists are so different. So just (laughs) off the top, we don't share any. Any, which is crazy. None. And last year, I think we would have had maybe two or three. But I love (laughs) it. I think it's fun. So you get us started. What is your number five? My number five is The Father, which was released at festivals in the past few months and will be widely released February 26th. You're living with your daughter at the moment? Yes, until she goes to live in Paris. No, Dad, why do you keep going on about Paris? You told me. No, I didn't. I'm sorry, Anne, you told me the other day. Have you forgotten? She's forgotten. (laughs) Paris, they don't even speak English there. (laughs) It's about a man who tries to retain his independence He's aging, he's played by Anthony Hopkins here, and he has dementia. And his surroundings are constantly changing. And as this is happening, he's doubting his loved ones, his own mind, and even the fabric of his reality. This also stars Olivia Coleman and Imogen Poots. It is the feature debut by Florian Zeller and an adaptation of his previous play. So by the premise alone, it sounds pretty simple, and I guess as a movie, it really is. I think as a stage adaptation, it's one of the best. And I was really blown away by how everything happens, the direction, the production design, all of the little details, even the editing. It was just so enlightening. And I loved that we were able to see from different perspectives, but to really feel how Anthony Hopkins feels in this movie which is so lost and confused and scared when you don't really understand what's happening in your life anymore. And the family is there for you and they're trying to care for you, but you even start to lose who they are. And that is just utterly terrifying. I mean, this I think is a masterclass from Anthony Hopkins. And I think that one thing I noticed when I watched this was that it was easy for me to compare it to I'm thinking of ending things, but I think that this one is a more palatable telling (laughs) of a story that has similar elements to I'm thinking of ending things. But we'll probably discuss this, I would guess, in more depth once more people can see it. Mm -hmm. We won't be spoiling anything on this episode. We're going to kind of go into these movies, but don't be afraid to listen because (laughs) we want to just like entice you to want to see these films. But in terms of awards for this movie, I would say Hopkins is a shoe-in. I think Olivia Coleman is a potential nominee for supporting actress. Mm -hmm. And then also for adapted screenplay, I think this could be really strong. I think so too. Okay, so my number five is a movie called The Nest, which premiered at Sundance. It was directed by Sean Durkin. It's his follow-up to Martha Marcy May Marlene, and it stars... Ohio Queen Carrie Coon and Jude Law. (laughs) You shouldn't be working for someone else. Be your own boss. Build your own place. Own your own horses. Something doesn't feel right. It's not your job to worry. You leave that to your husband. Scares me that you actually think that. The basic premise of it is that Jude Law plays this guy named Rory, and this character is like very typical Jude Law. He's just like this dashing British man who just sucks 
deep down. And he's this businessman who brings his American wife and his kids to England, moves them from America to, quote, explore new business opportunities because they've dried up in America. And they move into this beautiful but completely unaffordable English manor house and their life starts to deteriorate. And as listeners know by now, I love movies about relationships falling apart. And this movie was just so aesthetically pleasing to me. The story is just something that's like simmering with dread I would say too the lighting so Chris Ryan mentioned this on the big picture and I thought it was perfect but it's similar to Gordon Willis who is also known as the Prince of Darkness who shot the Godfather so you have a lot of very dark interiors very bright exteriors showing this difference between the inner and outer life and I think if you liked Phantom Thread or The Souvenir which I love both of those this one doesn't quite measure up to those but it comes close what I loved about it also is that Carrie Coon is just vibing this entire movie any of her scenes are like little ASMR videos whether it's like her driving and smoking a cigarette and drinking her coffee to heart or her ordering her vodka tonic to Bronski beat or dancing to don't leave me this way it's just unbelievable really just all the Carrie Coon scenes and she should be cast in more leading roles She should be. I absolutely loved her in this. I really like her too as an actress. And I listened to her podcast with Vanity Fair in Little Goldman. And that was an incredible interview. I think the way this movie is shot is somewhat interesting. There are a lot of slow zoom-ins. And I do think her character is really central in this story. One thing I noticed when I was watching this that just made me hate my brain. Also, if you're a Taylor Swift fan, which we have complicated a relationship with her on this podcast after talking about Miss Americana, but on Twitter, Hunter Harris talks about the lyric that lives rent-free in her head from the song Seven, which is, and I've been meaning to tell you, I think your house is haunted. Your dad is always mad and that must be why that is a perfect summary of this movie (laughs) so there you go watch the nest it is available to rent right now what is your number four my number four is sound of metal which is available on amazon prime so it's directed by darius martyr starring riz ahmed olivia cook paul racy and lauren ridloff you sound great yeah right what you're telling me you weren't feeling it you were in it It's about a heavy metal drummer whose life is thrown into free fall when he begins to lose his hearing. So Riz and Olivia as Ruben and Lou are this screamo rocker duo. And at some point, Ruben loses his hearing. And Lou really advises him to go to this facility where he can rehabilitate himself. The standouts here for me, this story is incredibly moving. I think there are some standout performances, especially with Riz Ahmed and Paul Racy, who have been acknowledged so far with film critics, which is great to see. Paul Racy is a child of deaf adults. And then Lauren Ridloff is deaf, and she plays an elementary school teacher where Ruben goes to learn American Sign Language and interact with this new community. And I think I mentioned before when we talked about this that there is a problematic nature to this movie in how Ruben deals with this new disability versus how the teacher and the students and the people at the facility really find a sense of pride in it and community. 
And I think that is really special. I think the dynamic here invites a lot of conversation, which I think is a good starting point. We don't have a lot of deaf characters in film. It's shot beautifully. I think Riz is just outstanding. We'll talk about him later in the episode. (laughs) We sure will. And the sound design here is just a standout. It so perfectly personifies Ruben's internal conflict and it switches between this diegetic and non-diegetic sound and how he perceives the world and how he used to perceive it. And I think that's really special especially when you're trying to showcase a conflict that is centered around sound itself. I love the sound. If it doesn't win Best Sound at the Oscars, like something might be wrong with that award. I think, too, Riz Ahmed is definitely the standout performance, but definitely don't sleep on Paul Racy. He is just as incredible in the movie, but a far, I think, more subtle performance. So might not jump out to you at first, but definitely was one that will stick with me as one of my favorites for the year. So what is your number four, Sophia? So my number four is First Cow, which we discussed on our VOD episode back in July. So if you want a really in-depth discussion of First Cow and our first impressions to watching it, you can go back to that episode. But it was directed by Kelly Reichert. And to me, what really made this movie stick out for me was that it's just this profound tale of friendship. Yes, it's about industrialization and capitalism, but I think most importantly, at its core, it's this story of platonic love and it's filled with empathy. It has just these gorgeous shots and cinematography that just makes it look like a painting. And it's a Western, but it doesn't feel mythologized like some of these John Ford movies do or more of the classics from the genre. And I think that you know, for some people it will be too slow or they'll say that nothing happens. And to some extent, like, yes, that's true. But I think that it's packed with so much if you just kind of let yourself sit in these deep, profound silences that she presents. And John McGarrow and Orion Lee, the two actors of the center, are just wonderful. And of course, Evie the cow, who just had a baby and they named her Cookie. So cute. So yeah, First Cow is my number four. I complained last week about News of the World being this boring (laughs) Western, which is all I'll say. But there's a reason to be bringing this up. I think First Cow is its own thing. It has Western elements, but it's first and foremost a drama. And like you said, a story of friendship. And I think it centers around other things and doesn't try to be something else, which I think is why it's so special. Right. It's not like Tom Hanks riding in a covered wagon Western. It's unique. And it feels like an urgent yet quiet story that needs to be told which Mm -hmm. I really loved as a story that this filmmaker chose to tell in 2020 but First Cow has been doing really well with critics as we mentioned last week at one New York Film Critics Circle and I'm very curious if it will get a Best Picture nomination to me it's unlikely somewhat but considering the history of that award you never know what is your number three My number three is And Then We Danced. It premiered in 2019 internationally and was eligible for the 2020 Best International Feature at the Oscars and was not chosen, sadly, but it wasn't released in the U.S. until February 2020. So I'm counting it. And this was just a really special movie. 
So it was a Swedish entry for the Oscars, but takes place in Georgia. And it's a passionate coming-of-age tale set amidst the conservative confines of modern Tbilisi, which is the capital of Georgia. The film follows Mirab, who is a competitive ballet dancer who's thrown off balance by the arrival of Irakli, a fellow male dancer with a rebellious streak. So it's an LGBTQ story about these two dancers falling in love in this country that is very conservative and upholds these values as the male being a dominant caretaker of the family. I think what I really loved about this movie is how the director, Levan Akin, shoots the characters and holds the camera's gaze. It captures them beautifully. The film is about dancing, and a lot of films that do this really capture the art of what they're trying to portray. I'm so glad you put this on your list because I hadn't heard of this and watched it on Prime like a few days ago and loved it. I thought it was really beautiful. I totally agree with you about the way that the camera moves and captures these really subtle movements that like people make when they're falling in love. That's just like very, very beautiful to watch. And for me, it reminded me a lot of Portrait of a Lady on Fire and how I felt when I watched that movie, which I also wanted to find a way to include on my list since (laughs) I saw it in 2020 and not 2019. But I think that this is a really beautiful film and I'm glad you included it because I don't know how many people have heard of this. I think sometimes what bothers me about certain styles of filmmaking is how they have these long takes and they do certain things with the camera that don't really hold a purpose except for being a style that they're going for. And I think what's different here is that these longer takes hold meaning in either showing a character's transitional emotions or changes in their surroundings. Another movie that this reminded me about recently that I watched yesterday was Welcome to Chechnya, which I mentioned earlier. But that film is also detailing how their destructive, corruptive government is just trying to silence this group of people. And I think where the movie goes is really powerful and it really, it is sad in moments but it is really hopeful too. Something really interesting I read about is how conservative and pro-Russian groups and government mobilized troops at the premiere of this film in Georgia. They really tried to stop it and that's just how horrifying and daunting this really is and this is still such a prevalent issue that people deal with around the world that I think I for one can take for granted here in America, which is just so humbling. So what is your number three, Sophia? So my number three is Lover's Rock, which was directed by Steve McQueen and is the second installment in the Small Axe series. I wish I could put all five just lumped together, but if I had to pick one, I would choose Lover's Rock because it just was this dose of pure euphoria and escapism that I needed in 2020. And when I watched it, I just felt fully alive. And that I feel like we just can't take for granted. And when things like that come along, you just have to seize them and appreciate them. And Steve McQueen has called this a fairy tale. I think on the surface, what it is, is it's this big dance party you have amazing needle drops like silly games and kung fu fighting but what felt really profound to me was that you had something in 2020 that was showing 
black joy and mm-hmm. love on screen and that's what it was and cam collins who was one of my favorite film critics he's at rolling stone he said i'm gonna read this quote from him small acts writ large details the lives of britain's west indian immigrants from the 60s through the 80s and never loses sight of the violence of that transition including the forced closure of black social spaces by the british government a prohibition that made covert gatherings such as the one depicted in lover's rock not only possible but necessary not only contagiously joyful but defiant this isn't any old party it's history unburied it really is just this profound and deeply moving experience that also just made me miss house parties and my friends I would kind of like to do an episode on Small Axe because now that I've seen all five, Uh I would like for us to rank everything. My favorite of the bunch was Mangrove, which was the first installment. They're also unifying, but each has its own vibe. I think, again, for me, what McQueen is doing here with the camera, I really like how he's capturing these characters and these people that, again, we either don't get enough representation of in film or aren't necessarily captured like this. And the culture that he's showing is just so vibrant. And I think he really does this here in Lover's Rock with the music like you've talked about. I would love to do a small axe episode. I really think he went five for five on these Mm -hmm. and would love to talk about the others too. What is your number two? My number two is Boy State, which again, we've talked about previously on a podcast. So if you haven't seen it yet, it's available on Apple TV plus and definitely listen to our podcast about it. It is directed by Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. It's about this group of 1,100 boys who went to the state capitol in Austin, Texas to build a representative government from the ground up. And all of the drama that ensues, it ended up winning the 2020 Sundance Grand Jury Prize and yesterday won the Chicago Indie Film Critics for Best Documentary. It's one of my favorite documentaries of the year. It is an expert case of verite filmmaking, and I highly recommend it. And then listen to our episode after you watch. So what is your number two? So my number two is a film that we've talked about quite a bit, but not in depth yet, because most people haven't seen it, and that is Minari. David, look! They're wheels! Wheels? GBG? It's directed by Lee Isaac Chung. It stars Steven Yun and others. And it's the story of a Korean-American family who moves from California to rural Arkansas to start this farm. And again, we'll definitely go more in depth into Minari once more people can see it. But I am so excited for everyone to watch this movie. I think it is just this tender moving story that is so beautifully detailed that it just it makes you feel like you've just read the great american novel it's a story of curiosity of dreams of family success failure all of those things this score by emile Masseri is one of the most beautiful things i've ever heard i love the score so much i love his scores in general i think if you're looking into film composers of today definitely check out his work this is definitely a special movie and i really liked the relationship between the grandma and the grandson here i think it's it's adorable but also just showcases some of the hardships that immigrants have when they come to america and i think the cinematography here is also outstanding 
There's so much humor, too, packed into that relationship. Mm-hmm. And Alan Kim, that little boy, is just the cutest, cutest thing. <laughs> there have been, like, little screenings virtually that have popped up, but it looks like it's not scheduled to go out until March 15th. So we do have a little more time to wait. It's also a really lovely at-home viewing experience. So once it's readily available, we'll let everyone know because we'll be so excited for everyone to check this out. Okay, so what is your number one? My number one is just a little bit anticlimactic only because we talked about it last week on the pod, but it is promising News of the world. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> That is on nobody's top 10 lists. Thank you very much. (laughs) My number one is Promising Young Woman, which is just an incredible and jarring and provocative movie that is done so well, directed by Emerald Fennell and mainly starring Carey Mulligan, but also Bo Burnham, Jennifer Coolidge, Laverne Cox, Adam Brody, Christopher Mintz-Plasse. Alison Brie, Connie Britton, and Alfred Molina. The cast is stacked. The story just grabs you from the minute it starts. The soundtrack's amazing. If you've seen this film already, I recommend that you listen to our pod because we do spoil certain parts in the film. And if you haven't, I haven't seen anything yet, but it should be available next week based on the AMC Universal shortened theatrical window for streaming. I can't wait for more people to see this. I thought about this while you were listing those actors. Great opportunity for a SAG ensemble. The ensemble is really strong. And the supporting performances, I think, really do, in addition to Carrie, of course, give the film a lot of life and make it just that much stronger. I have so many more thoughts. You can listen to our episode of it from last week if you want to hear all of those. Totally. So what is your number one? So my number one, it's Nomadland. one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. And they sometimes call you nomads. I love this movie so much. It was directed by Chloe Zhao, stars Frances McDormand, and an excellent cast of supporting characters, some of them actors, some of them real-life people. Generally, it's about a woman in her 60s named Fern who embarks on this journey through the western united states after losing everything in the recession and she lives as this van dwelling nomad and i'm obsessed with Frances mcdormand in this movie i actually think it's her best performance and i think that's partially because she and chloe Zhao are the perfect like match made in heaven they play off of each other really well and that their styles really mesh well together and I really could rave about Chloe Zhao all day but I think that the highest compliment I can give her here is that I thought of Varda often when I was watching this movie the queen of the French New Wave and her way of capturing the lives of these misunderstood marginalized people through this documentary-like style and how she has these really still beautiful symbolic images and how the writing and editing and cinematography and directing are all just 
seamless. It is such a beautiful, beautiful film. And it's winning a ton of awards, and I hope that it keeps winning. I don't think it will, unfortunately, but <laughs> I can't wait for more people to see this movie, even if it is just to appreciate Francis's performance and to welcome Chloe Zhao as this brilliant filmmaker. I really like the origin story to Nomadland. In 2018, when Chloe Zhao won a director's grant award and then later that night Frances McDormand had won for female lead for three billboards and in her speech she mentioned Chloe Zhao for having met the day before to start talking about this movie that would become Nomadland. I've loved Chloe Zhao from her previous film The Rider which did really well in the critic circle as well. You mentioned Anya's Varda and when I was watching Nomadland, I really thought of Terrence Malick and how she exemplified and brought in nature in this movie and made it mm-hmm. one of the characters, really, because it is so much a part of who her husband was and his industry and how it affects this town and this nation. It's really powerful. I think it's a great adaptation, and I cannot wait to see this and hopefully on the big screen, but I can't wait for this to be released and for everybody to see this. So it's scheduled right now for a theatrical release um, February 19th, 2021. But shortly after that, hopefully we'll get the VOD release so people can watch it at home. But I really cannot hype this movie up enough. If Frances wins her third Oscar for it, I will not complain. I think it's just an incredible performance. And I'm so mm-hmm. glad that we have Francis and Chloe working together. So if you don't think this movie is going to do well with the industry, do you think Chloe Zhao will? It's not necessarily that I don't think it will. I'm just so dubious of the industry and just them loving a film with virtually no plot. And that's just a piece of beautiful filmmaking from an independent Asian American woman with a woman in her 60s as the lead. I'm just not really sure how that will go. No, I see that. You know, I hope it does Mm -hmm. well. I'm not sure it's like a a locked up written in stone race when we still have so much time left and when Nomadland is the type of film that it is. And especially when you have Chloe who directed, produced, wrote, and edited the film. Yes. Which is just outstanding. So impressive. What if she gets four Oscar nominations <laughs> for the same movie? That would be so I am cool. All about it. Mm-hmm. So let's recap. My top five going from five to one is The Father, Sound of Metal, and Then We Danced, Boys State, and Promising Young Woman. And my top five going from five to one, we have The Nest, First Cow, Lover's Rock, Minari, and Nomadland. I love our lists. I think great lists. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So now that we have the critical side out of the way we wanted to go into some of our favorite weird movies or unusual viewing experiences from this year so i think the first strange movie i saw this year again something we have talked about on a previous podcast is she dies tomorrow (laughs) which i really didn't like at first and then i rewatched it and found it hilarious and so much fun to watch the humor is really good another one that was just really bizarre that I watched was Kajillionaire. I don't know how many of our listeners have seen a Miranda July movie, but her films are (laughs) so bizarre. And this one was no exception. Like there's a part when 
foam is coming out of the walls and Evan Rachel Wood doing somersaults with this like crazy wig on and Gina Rodriguez is in it. It is just, it's such an experience. I think it is a little bit more accessible than some of Miranda July's other movies. So I recommend checking it out, but it is not for the faint of heart or people who want something with just like a normal, easygoing storyline. So I don't think I've actually watched any of Miranda July's films, but the only movie that I've seen with her in it is Madeline's Madeline, which (laughs) did not have a good experience with. So I'm a little weary, but I know Kajillionaire was a wide release, big cast. I do want to get to it soon. I'm curious what you think of it. So I mentioned My Octopus Teacher earlier. I think this was crazy, so unexpected, but incredibly moving. I won't say anything else. I think I talked about it enough, but definitely worthwhile. You have this human having a relationship with this female octopus. Yeah, that's all you need to know. (laughs) Okay, my next one that I have is Wild Mountain Time. Oh, boy. Which is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Um, not, <laughs> not kidding here. The ending, you really have to see to believe. This was written and directed by John Patrick Shanley, who wrote Moonstruck. So should be better than it is, but it is just, it is not. And I've heard rumors that it's doing well with the Hollywood Forum Press. So, yeah. God, I I really don't know what to think of that. But Yeah, this was slated to have a lot of awards predictions. And God. this is not something I wanted to see. And this description kind of validates how I expected it to do. For your sake, I really hope that it's not on any list and you don't have to watch it. Yeah. Um, I watched it for John Hamm <laughs> and for Emily Blunt. And I really don't know why they signed up for this. Another recent watch that I enjoyed was Swallow. Have you seen this? Oh my this? God. Yes, I have. So uh, it's about this disorder that people get. It's called Pica, P-I-C-A. If you are easily squeamish, do not Google this. If you want to Google it, go for it. This led me down a very bizarre and dark rabbit hole. It's interesting how this movie really captures the disorder and different sub-diagnoses. I guess I really didn't know what to expect from it, and I'm happy I went in blind because this was really, really weird. Mm-hmm. Wait, so did you not know anything about Pika before? No. Okay. Nothing. So listeners, if you've ever watched like My Strange Addiction or anything like that, like a lot of people on that have Pika, and this movie captures it very well. And it's a tough set. It's very strange, but some of the shots I think are really, really beautiful. I think that's why I was so blown away is that it was such a beautiful movie. Mm-hmm. And the themes throughout and how it was sort of uplifting, which is so bizarre. Another one that is so strange that I don't really know if a lot of people have seen is called Horse Girl. <laughs> That's Alison Brie, right? <laughs> With Alison Brie. So my sister and I watched this like early, early quarantine. And we watched it because Matthew Gray Goobler is in it, who we both love. This movie is so bizarre, and I don't even know how to describe it. It's another illness movie. Oh, okay. Another one we've mentioned before is Relic, which is really dark and twisted and captures dementia in a different way that the father does. I think it's another powerful piece and is a beautiful metaphor for what these people are going through. 
So I, I recommend this. This we did on our horror VOD episode. With She Dies Tomorrow. And The Rental, which was also great. Yeah, We should have had Swallow on that one, too. That would have been a good, a good fit. My last weird experience was just seeing Tenet at the drive-in. <laughs> this drive-in yeah. where I saw yeah. Tenet was like the drive-in from Greece. It was just like people wanted a night out, and they went to see Tenet, which you could barely hear, and no one was paying attention. It was just... <laughs> like required all of my energy to try to understand what was happening while I was at this drive-in with a million distractions but it's definitely a movie going experience I will remember when I think of 2020 my last bizarre film for the year is Black Bear. Have oh you seen God, this? Oh my God, yes. Another film I knew nothing about. I had heard from different interviews that this was Aubrey Plaza's best film. And once you hit the halfway point, it's a total 180. It's crazy. And there are just so many levels to this. And I think everyone plays it well. The story's great. And I was just really taken aback. And the music when they play part two is just so jarring. Mm-hmm. It's like, wait, what is happening? Very bizarre, but I recommend it. So now we are getting into a segment that we actually did on our very first episode, like on SoundCloud, before we even had a name for this Ooh. podcast. Don't want to go back and visit that, but we are going to give our top five hottest characters of the year. <laughs> I wonder if I could guess yours. You can probably guess quite a few of mine. I don't think they're going to be like huge reveals for people listening. You can give your honorable mention if you want. So my honorable mention is Kyle Chandler in The Midnight Sky. Oh, God. Have you seen this yet? No, I haven't seen it. The George Clooney movie on Netflix? Okay. So I won't talk about the movie, but I love Kyle Chandler, um, Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights, and he plays an astronaut in this. He's just exactly my type of guy in this movie. I guess my fifth would have to be Aubrey Plaza in Happiest Season. Oh, that's good. Who is just incredibly beautiful and demanding as a character, which is honestly really attractive. So my number five is Ben Affleck in The Way Back. (laughs) I mean, not no, but there was definitely something going on with his under-eye designer bags that they really did some CG on. I support him, and (laughs) I think that he had a great redemption story here, and he looked great. Not all the time in the movie, but enough for me. I guess I should put Aubrey at four, but I'll say 5-4 will be Joseph Gordon-Levitt in either 7500 or The Trial of the Chicago 7. Okay, so my number four, I have Yaya Abdul-Mateen and sadly Eddie Redmayne in The Trial of the Chicago 7. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Might as well have just put Sasha Barry Cohen in there as well. No. (laughs) That's all right. My number three is Christopher Abbott in Possessor or Black Bear. My number three is Christopher Abbott in Black Bear. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) So listeners who don't know Christopher Abbott, he's Charlie in Girls. Who's really the only name I call him. I always call him Charlie. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always will think of him as Charlie. He was like only sadly largely in season one. He comes back later on, but it's definitely like a very supporting role. Earlier on in Girls, I wasn't into him like season one. I didn't really care. But when he comes back later and he has the beard and the shaved head, right? the buzz cut. Yeah, he yeah. looks really, really good. So my number two is Chris Messina in Birds of Prey, which makes me want to dye my hair blonde immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Messina is my number one Chris. I really support this this pick. I'm more into him when he has dark hair, but he looks good blonde too mm. in this. Yeah. He's also just like this grungy badass yeah. in the movie that is great to see. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, my number two is Riz Ahmed in The Sound of Metal. Ugh, he's my number one. Yeah, he's he easily could have been number just, one. Every frame was just like drooling over him. <laughs> Understandable. I mean, same. It definitely made it... And more enjoyable watch. (laughs) And I can't wait to see the red carpet looks. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Okay. My number one is the cast of Tenet. (laughs) You have Rob Pattinson looking like really, really good. John David Washington, who still looks like a football player. Aaron Taylor Johnston, who appears. Can't forget about him. Oh, I forgot about all these people. Mm -hmm. Yes. Elizabeth Debicki. Wow. Like this is a a very hot cast. Mm -hmm. So they had to be my number one. That's a good pick. I definitely knew Robert Pattinson had to show up somewhere. You'll be happy to know I watched Twilight. And (laughs) thankfully, he's made a total transformation from his appearance here, which is just so perplexing. He doesn't look great in Twilight. And I know that that might be controversial to some people. But the glittering, like, pale thing doesn't work for me. No. And his eyebrows are super done. And his accent. He just... (laughs) When he spoke, I was like, this isn't Robert Pattinson. I can't believe that you watched it. I really cannot be forced to watch any of the other movies, though. Well, the sad part is that you watched the best one. So you really, I think. That's it. I think it's a down. That would be a downhill journey. So (laughs) I'm happy that you watched the first one, though. And now, you know, So that's kind of our 2020 wrap up our top fives. I think we can both say that while 2020 was definitely a tough year in general and a hard year for the movie business, there's some great films out there from the year that we really recommend. Let us know what your favorites are and if you watch any on our list. And then we'll be talking about in a couple weeks, some of the most anticipated of 2021, which a lot of them were supposed to be released this year anyways. So hopefully we'll get a lot of these 2020 hopefuls in the coming year. So next time on Oscar Wild, we will be talking about one of our Oscar categories for this year with some predictions. We'll be talking all about best animated feature. And in that episode specifically, we will be highlighting two movies that we saw in 2020 soul which is now on disney plus and wolf walkers on apple tv plus two great movies this category specifically comes down to these two movies which have already been favorites in film critics awards it's really gone between these two movies so i think that'll largely make up our conversation because there is a lot to say about them and then also talking about other potential nominees that can round out the top five at the Oscars. This is the beginning of our oh my gosh. long-awaited four-month chat <laughs> leading up to the 2021 Academy Awards. Can't wait. Thank you so much for listening to Oscar Wilde in 2020. We can't wait to discuss more movies and hear from you in 2021. And as always, stay safe and wear your masks. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod, and you can find all of our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. Stay safe and wear your masks.